welcome to Best Worst Podcast number six. Is it number six? Isn't it? I have no idea. Yeah. Well, I think we did four and five last time. Excellent. Uh, it's been a while. It has. Uh, this is your one of your highly organized hosts talking, Doug. And this is Jacob. And if uh, if we get organized, this will be out in February of uh, 2012. Yeah. Um, but flying against convention and, and perhaps being unfashionably late... We decided that uh, we'd kick off with a best of 2011, because you haven't heard enough of those. Oh, I mean, can you ever get enough best of 2011? I can't, but other people apparently uh, don't like this. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I can understand, because it becomes a bit of a um, seeing the same titles over again and over and over again, you know? And then it's also tied up in um, the awards that dare not speak their names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I think um, well, I think you should you should actually should we go back and forth with okay, our top yeah, yeah. number five? Should okay. I start with your number five? Okay, so my number five, um, and bearing in mind that these are things that that I saw in cinemas last year, as opposed to uh, things that have had general release or you know whatever. Um, so my first one was more towards the mainstream uh, was True Grit the. Uh, the Western re-envisioning by the Coen brothers. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I found that fantastic. It was highly cinematic, beautifully shot. Um, Roger Deakins, I think, um, yes. was uh, cameraman again, and yeah, there were there were some just some wicked shots, like the the big horse riding sort of charge finale, well near, near finale, um, and the sh- the shot of of the the dead man in the tree, and then them trying to deal with that. Yeah, some fantastic stuff. But uh, classic Coens, uh, these guys seem to be able to do any genre and do it fantastically. Um, you know, you I've never seen Lady Killers, have you? Uh, no, I haven't actually seen Lady Killers. <laughs> Maybe they don't do that one so well. What is that one? I'll loan that to you. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a remake of the original. Oh, um, yeah. It's it's yeah, they're only black mark as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they're fantastic yeah. filmmakers, obviously. But they jump genre so much, and they just seem to you know nail it almost every time. Um, but yeah, so True Grit, um, fantastic. I mean, a Western, a great young lead with uh, Hayley Steinfeld, um, and uh, there's another young lady who's you know going to go places as far as I'm concerned. Um, dialogue was uh, you know sharp as ever, um, and and clever and, and dry and funny and classic Cohen mode. Um, yeah, to me it was it was win win all the way, and it was one that I made sure that I saw twice in cinema. Uh, I wish I'd been to see it twice, and it might have been on my list if I saw it twice. Um, I really liked it the first time, but um, I remember walking out and thinking that it felt slightly mis weighted, like in terms of where things fell in the narrative, just strange, strangely paced. Um, oh, yeah. I remember thinking Josh Brolin showed up quite late, and then was suddenly quite irrelevant, and. Um, some other minor qualms but I mean just hearing you talk about it and thinking back to those glorious shots mm. you know um, uh, and there's so many in that film and so many great sequences and, ju- and just the beauty of the dialogue um, one of the things that really stood out to me um, at the time was um, I really enjoyed how they um, worked Matt Damon um, I, 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 people might argue, but I, I felt that he was like cast against type somewhat, and I really liked that, particularly near the start, where he came, he comes across as almost kind of dangerously dodgy. He, he makes a couple of slightly off-color comments to the young girl, who's right. supposed to be twelve, and you know he's a Texas Ranger, but he's, you know, 
he's he's, he's uh, wily enough to, to give her a spanking but also make some slightly iffy comments to her and I, and I was like that's reasonably unlike Matt Damon he's usually the good guy I mean it's the informant where he plays yeah know. I mean the last thing I watched by him was the informant. informant I just threw that on the other day and remembered how much I loved it um, I think Damon's a great actor yeah. I think he's really um, uh, underrated for mm. you know just people still thinking of this is a pretty boy from 15 <laughs> years ago and he's just quietly gone and done a lot of different things from you know those very goofy roles to you know the boring roles yeah. and, and lots of points in between and um, you know I think he's somebody that people will look back on in, in 30 or 40 years and look at a body of work that's really impressive yeah as and yeah, so he, Rowan, he, he was great and, uh, and Jeff Bridges as well um, who I the Coens kind of helped me rediscover a love for him with Lebowski um, and as him as the dude because uh, the only film I've ever walked in out on um, uh, was Fearless which was a Jeff Bridges film about a guy who survives an airplane crash and I, I just got bored out of my tree and I left and it sort of coloured my view of him but now he, he's just fantastic as the grizzled protagonist very briefly and I should mention as always the Best Worst Podcast is sponsored by whichever scotches we're drinking at the time um the Glen, the Glen Livet, sixteen-year-old or it's a Nadura, yeah. Nadura, and I'm on the uh, Glen Morangi La Quinta Ruben, and uh, we should give a toast to um, his co-star in The Big Lebowski, Ben Gazzara. Yeah, Ben passed away. Um, an amazing Sad. actor. Um, killing of a Chinese bookie. Yeah, um, he was Jackie Treehorn in The Jackie Big Lebowski. Jackie Treehorn, Big Lebowski. You know, right. he treats objects like women. <laughs> 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 and, uh, uh. Yeah, that that was um, that and. All sorts of interesting roles. Dogville. Yeah, Roadhouse. He was, he was a fantastic bad guy in Roadhouse. Yeah, I mean, that's... And my favorite moment of him I actually posted on Twitter today was... Um, uh, one of my favorite moments was him in uh, Buffalo 66. Um, pretending to the... Um, to uh, um, the girl character whose name I... Lila, Layla. Layla. To the Layla character that... Um, that he was singing the song when he was lip-syncing the entire thing. Uh, it was fantastic. <laughs> and then he gives her kind of a sleazy... Give Daddy a hug, Mo. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, he's missed. I, I and this opening night is another film that he's uh, Casabetti's film that he's oh, excellent yeah. in. And uh, yeah, I, I haven't had a chance by him to go back and watch some of those, and also track down Husbands, which I think is, uh, mm. um, as far as I can tell, it consists entirely of Peter Falk, John Casabetti's, <laughs> and Ben Gazzara um, behaving badly for ninety minutes and getting uh, yeah. drunk, and it's supposed to be a classic. So. <laughs> Um, anything else you want to mention before I go to my number five? No, let's shoot you. Well, my number five is also a Western, which we may talk a bit more about later. But um, Meek's Cutoff, which uh, I did not see at the New Zealand Film Festival, which we're at Screen Net, but I happened to catch in Melbourne randomly. Oh. And, um, yeah, it's a film that uh, we've I think we've talked about before, actually, in our festival yeah. preview, so I don't want to belabor the point too much. But it is out on DVD now, so for those of you who missed it it's really worth a look at home um we've both spot checked it and it's an excellent yeah it's a great um, transfer um yeah. visually it, it's pretty it does a good job of capturing the the excellent visuals um which are a large strength of them yeah i ha- i haven't um sat down to watch the whole thing start to finish at home and i don't know how well it will work in a home setting it's very slow it's very um almost meditative i did it on the couch uh, one night and yeah awesome Excellent. Okay. Loved it. So, yeah. I think I think it's just one of those, though. Turn everything off. Turn your Twitter off. Turn yeah. uh, your smartphones off. Yeah. And 
and let yourself and get a big screen get lost <laughs> yeah get, get a big screen if you can don't try to get rid of the black bars on the left and right of the screen no please don't change the aspect ratio yeah. don't zoom it out oh. it's the it's shot at academy ratio which is one three three to one which you would yeah almost never see these days and apparently it's been misprojected all over the world so um, hopefully you won't uh, be contributing to that at all. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'll talk about that more in, in cool. the future. But uh, you've got my number one? four. Yep. Okay, my number four um, is uh, the directorial debut by Sean Durkin. It's um, the hard to say film, which I can say really well now Martha Marcy May Marlene. That was done very well. Martha Marcy May Marlene. <laughs> <laughs> it took me ages to get that, wrap my mouth around that. But, um, uh, yep, that's my uh, number four. Uh, uh, Starring Elizabeth Olsen, um, I've talked about it before um, at the festival, um, and yeah, it's just a, a great kind of portrait of um, psychological meltdown, really, um, and sort of yeah, um, just a real unsettling kind of film about an unsettling experience and a girl trying to deal with that um, coming out of a cult. And it actually comes out in New Zealand in um, March and fifteenth, I think it's due. Yeah, it sounds all right. Yeah, so that would be one to get to for sure. Um, and that's, I think, uh, tweaked the uh, notice of quite a few critics, if yeah. not the Academy. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, it was a very low-budget film yeah. that played at Sundance on spec with no distributor. True. And that um, the performance that was in it got so close as to be considered yeah. a major contender for an Academy Award, I think, um, speaks volumes for... Um, a, the talent of uh, Elizabeth Olsen and Sean Durkin as the director, mm. but also um, kind of the reputation that their company has yeah. built, which we can will go into a bit more yeah, yeah. later. Um, but yeah, I, again, I, a film that I didn't um, gel with quite as much in part because of the company's previous work and in part um, some really specific issues that I had, but another film that... I think is very worth watching, and I would definitely. I'm. I'm seriously think I'll probably go watch it again. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll definitely see it when it comes out. This yeah. is something that um, I think I'm sure I mentioned before, but I think that watching a film twice um, helps a lot. It's certainly with Drive, for instance, which is a film that I didn't like the first time um, and had some major issues with. Um, once I saw it again, knowing what it was trying to do mm. and not having sort of a preconception and uh, of what I thought it would be mm. uh, made a huge difference to me. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, I really like first viewing of films for... Uh, particularly if I, if I don't read too much about them um, and just let them wash over you. Um, but, yeah, coming back to it a second time, I think, allows you to... Uh, to analyse it a little bit more, to, to notice a bit more... Um, some of the technical aspects of it that the director's trying to achieve or that, that they're doing with the edit, things like that, that you might not have, I guess, the space to take notice of the first time. Yeah, I guess for me, it's just it's taking the film on its own terms. When I saw Martha Marcy, May Marlene the first time, there were two things that were really present in my mind. One was it was a second film from Borderline. Uh, yeah. whom, um, uh, and so the previous film by Antonio Campos, uh, After School, was the first film. Mm. And so I was stylistically stacking it up against that. Mm. And then also, um, I personally have had an interest in doing a cult movie for a long time, and I have a very uh. specific vision of what that would be, which is very different 
from where they went to it, which I don't even necessarily think colored it positively or negatively so much as um, kept part of the brain working when I should have just been, you know, shut up and sit back and enjoy the film. <laughs> have you seen the short Mary last scene that was kind of prefiguring it? I have not. Have you? No, I haven't. I wouldn't mind seeing it. Um, but from what I've read, it's um, a short that uh, explores cults as well, but it's looking at someone being lured into or joining a cult, whereas this yeah. is about someone who's been through it and is remembering the experience and the psychological trauma and is coming out has come out of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very difficult film to talk about without major spoilers, but a lot mm. of um, there's a lot of question, I think, in Martha, Marcy, me, Marlene, of the reliability of yeah. the narrator as well, and yeah. that plays into some of how easy it is to interpret or not interpret the film. Yeah, and which is me, what I really yeah. liked. One of the points I really liked about it was that it was quite ambiguous, um, and that you really kind of... Well, I don't know that you were forced to choose, but you you had a lot of kind of decisions to make about what what was real and what was remembered and all that kind of stuff, which is great. And, you know, yeah, I think um, for me there are a number of films, and this is one that I've seen this year. And um, Take Shelter and Hugo are two more, where it feels like if two people would just have a conversation <laughs> thirty or forty five minutes earlier, that it feels like it would be reasonable to have. Yeah the whole film wouldn't have a reason to exist. And um, Martha Marcy May Marlene is the least guilty of those three. Um, Take Shelter relies on the dramatic contrivance of perhaps I'll just dig a giant hole in our backyard and my wife won't notice. Uh, (laughs) Which I found just completely broke my belief. And and, uh, But this film, to a lesser extent, um, had a similar thing. And and Hugo as well. there's a, the opening conversation with Ben Kingsley and uh, the boy whose name I can't remember. It's just like if either of them kind of opened up just a little in what would be a not unreasonable way, we'd have short-circuited 45 minutes of <laughs> yeah. unnecessary stuff. But this is that's one of those weird personal mm. issues. Okay, so you're number four? My number four played World Cinema Showcase, and uh, it was called The White Meadows, and uh, I don't even think it's out on DVD here. Oh, I remember um, looking at that and thinking that was one I wanted to get to, but it just didn't quite make my list. Yeah, it um, it's stunning, and it's a really... Um, I'm really a fan of, I guess, magical realist cinema, mm. um, but of a kind that's so deadpan that it's almost realist and um, and uh, films like uh, Roy Anderson's You the Living yeah. would be a good example of what I'm talking about um, but with the White Meadows um, as about a person that travels around collecting people's tears um, and then trading them in and and it's so quiet and deadpan at first you think that this is actually documenting a ritual that happens and this ties into one of your films that's coming up. Um, So I think you might be really interested in it. But um, um, just stunning location photography um, uh, and a very quiet but not so thinly veiled allegory about um, the political situation around. This was... um, Hmm. uh, I believe the director's name was Ross Luth who... um, was one of the two people arrested along with um, oh. McMalboff um, uh, 
earlier this year and thrown into prison and yeah. not allowed to make films. And um, he's made a he's made a not a film since then called Goodbye as well, which I believe played Wellington's uh, festival that bypassed ours. Mm. Um, but it's just it's just using cinema to create a vision that you don't get to see. Uh, yeah, that that you wouldn't expect to see. Um, and really just st- images from that movie are just really stuck in my brain. These, you know, white islands that they wash up on, these journeys in the boat through salt water. Um, yeah, it's a really special film, and I strongly encourage those interested. In, mm. um, and that's not likely to come back, is it? Well, it played World Cinema Showcase last year. Yeah. Um, it's something that Film Society might pick up at some yeah. point, but um, possibly on DVD. maybe a couple of years. Yeah, I, I haven't heard of a DVD release, but I haven't looked very closely. Mm. It would be great if it would, because um, uh, you know Iranian cinema was quite trendy like ten years ago, and there yeah. was there was kind of for a while everybody was watching everything that came out, and then um, it just sort of seemed to drift off a little bit. Um, you know, and part of that might have been. Uh, for instance, uh, Abbas Kiarostami, you know, being one of the major names, mm. he he went experimental for a while and then um, did a certified copy in Europe because I don't think he was really able to work in Iran anymore. McMalloff yeah. um, uh, did uh, Offside. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that was um. Panahi. Oh, Panahi. I've got my names wrong. Um, let's just pretend the whole last couple minutes didn't happen. So. <laughs> So Panahi uh, was the person who was jailed, not McMulpoff. And uh, Panahi, uh, yes, did Offside and I think came under a lot of yeah, scrutiny yeah. for that film. Um, yeah, I think that's all I have to say about that film. Uh, so what's your number three? <laughs> My number three is uh, Melancholia, Lars von Trier. Uh. What can you say about that? Um, the the screening I can say a lot but I'll let you talk Chris <laughs> the screening particularly at the Civic um, during the festival was uh, for me a standout screening um, the, the, yeah in many ways this wasn't the best film in terms of uh, screenplay or um, or writing but there was some great um, camera work in it um, in part and as a cinematic experience I found it yeah yeah really uh, fantastic and some really impacting cinematic, cinematic moments like the opening and the closing are real centre points and at the well centre points are a high points um, and at the Civic uh, with a completely packed crowd and a sound system I had no idea existed there um, it was just an all encompassing experience uh, the ending uh, left uh, a packed room just in stunned silence and they purposely have this uh, fade to black which kind of goes on and on for quite some time or noticeably longer than usual before it hits credit roll um, and it was just dead silence um, as everyone just kind of recovered from the ending um, yeah it was just fantastic um, for me um, some of the things people have issues with I'm, I'm not so bothered about um, some of the thematic stuff how much you know the ways that he works out his personal issues through cinema the fact that he's not at all subtle I mean he's never been subtle never pretended to be um, so I don't have issues with that but structurally I, I really enjoyed it I really enjoyed the um, the uh, the kind of perverse symmetry of the film um, and 
the way that characters kind of invert their position in the two segments um, the contrast of, of the busyness of one and the starkness of the other um, of the sort of the, the stress and the busyness which is kind of somewhat minor relatively um, but everyone's kind of all up in arms about it and then in, in the the the, the underlying stress in one sister and then the kind of growing serenity in the other and the much worse um, part, you know section second section um, yeah. yeah well uh, what I liked about that duality was the sense that um, uh, Kirsten Dunst's character had this mental disorder that for most situations was disadvantageous yeah. but suddenly when the end of the world's coming mm-hmm. she's uniquely suited yeah. to uh, handle that <laughs> and perversely this, the people who seem well equipped to handle everyday life fall apart in the face of yeah. that sort of thing I did enjoy that um, uh, you know at the end of it my main feeling was that I want Lars von Trier to buy a tripod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of shaky cam going on. And, and, <laughs> there, there's a lot of, and, and here's the, like, I've seen most of Lars von Trier's films. Yeah. Like, there's a couple like Medea and um, one or two others that have snuck through. But, um, and there's two things I really feel. First is that in the past decade, the two films I've enjoyed the most are... Um, the boss of it all and the five obstructions and the two where he's been trying the least he's not trying to make a statement he's not trying to do a thing I mean the boss of it all he even says at the front this is an unimportant film Film, and then he goes on to make one of the most entertaining um, captivating films that he's made that just works for me and you know I'm not going to second guess your placement or anybody else I know Melancholio's had a lot of strong reactions um, but also, he, you know, his early films like Zentropa and The Element of Crime were very, very stylized, mm. very stunted in their acting in certain ways. Yeah. And uh, I was doing a bit of reading um, with somebody who worked with him. I can't remember who it was, an assistant director. He worked with him on The Kingdom and Breaking the Waves. Oh, right. And that's part of what um, where Von Trier developed you know, a new fluidity with actors. And obviously, mm. I mean, Breaking the Waves is a film that changed mm. my film going live. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, regardless of anything else you can say about Von Trier, he's got some extraordinary performances yeah. in the last 15 years. But a lot of that's based around this handheld jump cutty kind of style. And in Antichrist and Melancholia, you know, those stylized pieces exist as bookends, but um, it's not really integrated with a style of the rest of the film no no and for me uh, with melancholia um particularly i i actually kind of liked that um in terms of the overall structure of the piece i liked um that there were these two bookends and then uh a very kind of perversely symmetrical um uh middle sections um where the characters were inverted and their responses to the situations were inverted do you like Um, jump cuts I don't mind them. I mean, right. I don't go looking for them. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I guess, I guess for me, it's just like, having seen all these things that he can do, you know, and especially in these early movies like Centropa, you yeah. know, and see, and you're getting these tantalizing teases of it in Antichrist and Melancholia. I just want him to, you know, buck up a little bit and be like, you know, do you could film. do better. <laughs> <laughs> you could actually do it. You know, you don't have to cross the line. You don't have to have a really awkward jump cut you know you can just you know 
Um, but it's important to him for some reason, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it's I'm part of his kind of idiosyncratic style, really, I guess, or development of it. Um, and I mean, and the fact is he, he maintains a level of interest, um, both personally and as a filmmaker, I think. Um, and, uh, and I guess the, uh, the level of conversation around his films, um, pretty much consistently is, is testament to that. And we're not sitting around yeah. talking about some people's films. <laughs> yeah, and I, I suppose it's a, probably the low point of the conversation was probably around the boss of it all, which is probably the high point of my uh, <laughs> experience with him. So maybe I just have to accept that my tastes in Von Trier are out of step with everybody else's and not try to will him into being something that he's not. And speaking of odd cutting, <laughs> the boss of it all had, you know... I yeah, mean, oh yeah, the, bo- the boss of it all is... I mean, that that's a film that has its whole, oh, we're going to choose the uh, angles by computer you know, and yeah. stuff like that. But it it was just embracing that was the gimmick of the film. Yeah, yeah. Like, it we've decided a- we're going to make a film that way and see what happens, rather than I'm deliberately making a film where I've made yeah. this aesthetic choice. And, and, and it was a consist- yeah. consistent aesthetic style yeah. throughout the film, yeah. Yeah. But, um... Anyway, that was my number three. And uh, yeah. what was yours? Mine was Aita, which is a Basque film that I saw at the film festival, as with you know, many of these others. <laughs> oh, uh, those uh, well-known films of Basque. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's. Um, I think even by Basque cinema standards, it's pretty obscure. It's um, largely, uh, entirely, in fact, set around a single house that the... Uh, filmmaker came in ownership of that was in disrepair and um maybe that's why i like reading the the festival program i had just had no interest in it um but i've subsequently heard you and, and a couple of other friends rate it very highly yeah well it was just the you know one of the things i do is you know as the festival's coming up i'll you know i'll be googling and i'll mm. put you know the program out there and uh you know see what um people on various film groups or whatever i have to say and somebody described it as a um an experimental ghost story and um and that that's kind of what it is if you think of um light itself as being a ghost um a lot of the movie uh it was shot for years and years um as i mentioned the director owns the house so he was able to study how light moves through it and and just sit sit there for days and weeks and be like oh that's really interesting that at that point that's where it's coming and that's what's backlit and so on and um and so it's a very um central experience of of watching things slowly move and there are the, occasionally these conversations about upkeeping the house mm. or the history of things that are in the house but i think that's almost just a sop to making it seem like a normal movie <laughs> <laughs> you know i th- i think if it's about anything it's about that and um uh, but the reason it came in number three, um, there's a moment in it um, in which light invades, and I won't describe it any more than that because it's a tremendous surprise when you first see it. Um, and it invokes the history of the area, and it was electric, and I got mm. I got goosebumps, and that there's no other film that gave me goosebumps this year. Ah, uh, that's and, an experience. Yeah, and I think I think. I've been I've been um, listening to and reading a lot of um, Mark Kermode lately. I don't, have you followed him at all? Uh, no. British uh, 
uh, film critic, uh, has written a book on The Exorcist, does lots of uh, highly opinionated yeah, uh, podcasts. Yeah, name right um, but um, in his book, he talks a lot about... Um, he mentioned something about how he prefers the more recent Breathless with Richard Gere to the 1960s one. But he's like, you know, but if I'm being honest with myself, I had this very special day when I saw the remake of Breathless and I just came in very primed for something that just hit me in the right place. And the original Breathless I saw in one of those, well, I haven't seen this. I got to check this off the list of shit I got to see if I'm a film critic (laughs) days, you know? (laughs) And, and I think that's, I mean, I think that's one of the things with all these lists, it's like these are not the five films that I'm picking that I would shake any random person and say, you need to see them. They're just the five films which, for very specific reasons, resonated with me. Yeah. So. I mean, and that's true of, of all of them. But uh, if you are listening to this, then, yeah, the five films I mentioned you do have to see. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which means we should probably mention the next film that somebody has to see. Uh, yes. Number two on my list was a little-known Russian film called Silent Souls, which I made mention of in the festival. Um, and unfortunately, I can't see it coming to a cinema near you anytime soon um hopefully it makes it to dvd um and it possibly, might be possibly the film days. society maybe maybe um uh alexei fedichenko um was the director and um one of the things about this film when it came out was that uh, uh there was some kind of conceit around it being uh, based on a factual tribe and tribal ritual, so the film is uh, the kind of the loose plot. What there is is uh, a, a man's wife dies, and uh, he takes a. F- well, it's not really a friend; he's an employee who also knew his wife, um, who's of the same tribe, um, and uh, they play out a, a dying. The, tri- the tribe is dying out, but the dying tribal ritual, because they're t- two of the few people who know about it and know how it's supposed to be done in terms of uh, coming to terms with uh, the grieving process and, and the death and preparing the body and, and then disposing of the body in, in a culturally appropriate way. And so they go on this road trip with, with the body um, and they play out all these things which involve telling stories about the person as you knew them in life. Um, and some quite explicit stories, um, and it's not so much to be rude or to shock, but re- rather to, to to express your passion about the person in an uninhibited way to someone else who knew them, um, and for them to be able to take that without judgment or um, yeah, or, or without commenting really, um, mm. but to share their experiences as well, and, and to share with you the grieving person. Um, now, did you take all of that as like a commentary on our grieving rituals as a society, or did you just take that? <laughs> as a conceit from which to create this magic realist universe? Um, I, I, I think... I, I don't think you can divorce some sort of... Uh, well, uh, even if it was a conceit, a, a way of, of getting you to critique your own ways of dealing with grief and, and loss and, and even just rituals around life. Um... And coming from a Māori background, I have, a, I have a different way of approaching funerals and grief to a lot of my Pākehā friends, and my wife as well. Uh, um, the first time she came to Tangi for my my um, nana was a very different experience for her. Um, being on, on the marae with the body and the whanau gathered round as everyone came and greeted the dead body and, and, 
and shared grief and tears and stories and kissed the body and stuff like that. Right. Prior to I've never been to a Maori funeral, so that's had my experience. And and with more well-known tribal elders or whatever, like my uncle, um, the body going from marae to marae and going through the same thing before going to the resting place. Um, Was that on your mind a lot when you watched the film? I... I wasn't specifically thinking of my grandmother, but yeah, the whole idea of different ways of, of grieving okay. is, is kind of present in my head. Um, so I, I think the themes are universal, and um, it, to me it didn't matter whether this was a realistic thing or not, although I'd already read that, that it was a fictitious culture. Um, so yeah, there's a fictitious culture and a fictitious set of rituals, but they're not, they're not so dissimilar to actual cultures and rituals that um that you know that they ring it true enough for you to kind of get a feel for different ways of approaching that kind of thing and and the ways that people interact and about being honest about yourself your feelings and the person that you know you were closely connected to that you've lost um but for me the film was primarily just a, a beautiful piece of cinema though it, it it did look at some interesting um topics um it, it was yeah, it was constructed beautifully, um, shot beautifully. Uh, it was a, it was in a slow cinema section, and I'm not a big slow cinema enthusiast, but I would call this a great introduction to slow cinema for someone who thought they might be interested, um, because it was relatively short. It wasn't like some sort of two or three hour epic. It was, I think, it was about eighty four minutes or something like that, um, and it had uh, had a reasonable narrative arc, so it wasn't kind of so obscure. It wasn't like you know. Um, uh, limits of control or anything like that which had a framework but really sort of no nothing to hang your head on in between I thought you were going to say the Turin horse <laughs> yeah, or, or any kind of Bella Tower film um, but it had plenty of dialogue and plenty of things happening it just wasn't a concrete narrative in terms of all the stuff is happening it was very meandering it was, in fact the it had a very interesting cadence to the film that I really liked um, that was that mirrored the um, the affinity with water, the elemental sort of sense of it, um, and there was a lot of sort of streams and rivers, and 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 their burial ritual had to do with water. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of my favorite things about the film, which is one of my favorite things about a lot of Russian cinema is the um, use of these these really elemental mm. um, things. There's a great Chris Marker film about Andrei Tarkovsky where he mm. talks about how the elemental symbolism in Tarkovsky is really important yeah. in the air and earth and fire and water. And For those who want to look it up, One Day in the Life of Andrei Asinovich. So you've seen it as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, like the end of The Sacrifice, where they, that, you know, the air, the mm. earth, fire, water all come together. And a similar moment happens in Silent Souls, um, where you know, they're burning the body by the water. Mm-hmm. And so you have the, the earth nearby it. You have the fire of the body burning you have the smoke going into the air and then you have the water nearby and um yeah it's it's one of those things that doesn't really submit to rational analysis of why is that important it just Mm. speaks to you and um and i and it's interesting hearing you talk about it it, because it's a film that really frustrated me in a lot of ways when i saw it and i don't know how much was being tired or expecting Mm. more linear kind of thing or looking for a justification for the clear fictitious nature of some of the rituals like you know the extreme discussions of you know they're 
the sex life that the uh, you know the widower had with the deceased. Or, yeah. Is it widower? What's the word? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, and and yeah, fine. It's a, it's a film that I think if it I found a way into that I could grow to really love. Mm-hmm. Well, see, I, I'm not even sure why I picked that one. I think for me, I, I love Russian cinema and 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 Russian culture, and so I always try and see at least one or two Russian films if they're on the on the uh, program. Um, and Elena was Elena was uh, up there. Um, uh, and this one, um, but I think the write-up for this one interests me a little more, and I think I couldn't fit Eliana into my um, program, so so I, I got this one. But I, but I don't think I was particularly kind of drawn into this is going to be a great film, and so I was kind of unex- unexpectedly moved. I think that helps. I think mm. that um, a lot of my favorite films from previous years at the festival and. Um, 1208 East of Bucharest comes to mind, yeah. a Romanian film yeah. from a few years back, uh, Longing, a German film. Huh? That um, uh, I was, it was one of those. I'm downtown for five films, and there's a slot here, and I'll go see a film here, and this is the only thing that interests me. Mm. And it was one of my films of the year that year. Mm. Um, a German director whose name I won't dare to pronounce. Um, but yeah, and I think it may tie back to. You know the flip side of when you go to see something like Martha Marcy May Marlene, and it's been like, oh, it was a big hype at Sundance. You know the yeah. director and all this thing, and you have these expectations, and mm. then you see something that's a null set, and that's, um, you know, how do you get to that point where you can just approach everything with you know with z- a fresh yeah. yeah like the Zen mind, beginner's mind kind of. I'm <laughs> yeah. just going to be open to this experience, no yeah. matter what it is, and not put my expectations on it. Yeah. It's the ideal way to see a film, but it's mm-hmm. an incredibly difficult way to see a film. And the perverse thing about loving films is the more you learn, <laughs> yeah. the more difficult it, it is, is to, to see something. Yeah. And that to be way. truly surprised and yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this this one I I was really really touched by. I just found it a beautiful piece of cinematic poetry. Mm-hmm. So what was your number two? It was not what I would call cinematic poetry but uh, Errol Morris's tabloid uh, was is my number two, and it's a stunning both piece of entertainment yeah. and um, meditation on some deep themes all at once. And the great thing about it, and the thing which makes it such a standout film for me, is that it works as both. Errol mm. Morris has been dredging through some very dark subject matter in the past couple mm. films with a standard operating procedure being set... Um, you know, around Abu, Abu Ghraib yeah. and the fog of war, assuming the career of Robert McNamara and, you know, um, and so I think, and this film's been really overlooked this year. And part of it's because, I, um, you know, it's been a strong year for certain art films, you know, um, there's some, there's some films that a lot of people have been excited about this year that we haven't mentioned. Um, Tree of Life comes to mind yeah. is one um, and there's some that I th- we saw in 2010 that were 2011 releases in the yeah. States like Uncle Boon Me and Certified yeah. Copy yeah. Um, and some that haven't come out here like Tuesday after Christmas um, but but somehow I don't know Tabloid slipped through the cracks it wasn't nominated for an Oscar by the Academy uh, and and I I just think because it's so Entertaining. Yeah, that it's blinding right. everybody to how good it is. Yeah, I, th- I think people almost can't sort of 
it's like it's like it seems a bit wrong that mm. something can be so odd and quirky and fun yeah. and yet and yet actually touch on some serious um, and and touch on it really well. Yeah. Um, and plus, I think Errol Morris has uh, one of the strengths for me as as a filmmaker is that. Um, Although he works primarily in documentary, or only in documentary, I don't think he's I've seen made it. one fiction feature. Okay, I haven't seen that. I haven't either. Um, the Dark Half. And if you're uh, but of all the documentary features that I've seen, like it, this made my top ten, and, and it was my top documentary of the year. And I've seen a few that were that I regarded really well, like Restrepo um, or Senna, um, the documentary, which was surprising um, for me. Um, but what? Errol Morris has or does that um, that no other documentary I've seen does is that he brings filmmaking skill to his projects. It's not like he picks a fascinating subject and then the subject is so fascinating that he then sort of strings some interview segments together and and, it, and you get this just nail biting piece. It's, he constructs a film out he, of out of documentary. It's yeah. fantastic. I mean, his music. So, yeah. Filmmaking ability, camera shots and framing, all that stuff is he thinks about it and pieces it together like no other documentary filmmaker I've seen. Yeah, he has a really deep formal concern. He's mm. he's he works in two three five aspect ratio, which you know you're mm. normally used to seeing blockbusters and the uh, <laughs> widescreen, and instead you get tabloid. And what he does with interviews and in that I find fascinating. Mm. Um, what he does with just pacing and yeah. Um, just the level of thought he's applying, you know, and he's just he's just working on another level from most documentary mm. filmmakers. Um, Maybe and, a friend doesn't appreciate that for documentary. Well, I mean, notoriously, the Academy took a look at Thin Blue Line and turned it off after 15 minutes and said, that's, that's it's criminal. not a documentary. That's criminal. You know, it's got reenactments in it, you know, the yeah, yeah. throwing of it. And I think to the extent that Errol Morse doesn't underline... The themes about you know identity and defining mm. yourself through narrative rather than you know actually realistically outlining the facts around you, perhaps he underplayed those things to the point where he talked himself out of an Oscar where if he had made this a more significant meditation on those themes and by significant I mean I don't mean actually more significant I mean Just made it more obvious, obvious. yeah <laughs> yeah it's like you know that's and that's something um, that I've been thinking about a lot you know there's a point where you know 10 years ago I would see every movie that was nominated for an Oscar because they were the important movies <laughs> you know and they would tell you they were the important movies they'd have oh, the yes. important soundtracks they'd come out at the right time of year they'd have all these things about them that were very important and it took me a while to get my head around the fact that a lot of them were a load of codswallop dressed up in important you know furniture you know and and there's a particular film that comes to mind when I think of that that just pissed me off tell me come on Atonement (laughs) I yeah it it was Oscar bait um the cinematography on it was just it it was over the top and really didn't need to happen um, in the film, in the context of the film. And mm. I just sat there. Are you talking about that long tracking shot at oh, the boat? Oh, yeah, 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 that one. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, a whole bunch of stuff in that. I just thought, the film doesn't need this, but they're doing it because they want to, they're gunning for an Oscar. And it uh, annoyed the crap out of me. Have and you I saw the like, positive reviews. And, no, I haven't. Okay. Um, just but just as a film. Oh. I, I was a little more fond of Atonement than you are, but that's par- probably partially because I liked the book and I thought yeah. uh, brought some of that. But I'm 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, but you know, everybody will probably have their own. I mean, the English patient is the one oh, yeah, that yeah. makes me um, stabby. Um, <laughs> yeah. as, and that was a film where I loved the book, and what they did with it was unconscionable. And, um, and so I didn't mind the film, but I didn't think it was. I it, it held this place where people thought it was so fantastic, and I thought, mm, yeah, really? Well, was, and this, and, <laughs> and and you know, there there are awards that dare not speak their name, but um, one of the reasons that I hate those awards is because they wind up sucking so much oxygen mm. out of the air. I mean, one of the things that um, the films that you're talking about and the films that I'm talking about have in common is they're not being discussed mm. with, in terms of, you know, are they going to show up at a theater next month and have one of their, you know, <laughs> creative partners appear on television? We're not going to be bothered um, talking about, you know, whether these films are going to make it in, what is it, 18 days or... Yeah. <laughs> or 47 <laughs> yeah, well, there's that whole thing as well. <laughs> they're not going to make it in any number of days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's they're not they're not interested in distribu. It's not that they're not interested in distributors. It's the distributors aren't interested in them. Um, and that's not the case every year. It just seems to have worked out this year that my film's mm. tabloid was the only one that got any sort of distribution. I think that was two weeks. My number one, I'm really surprised didn't get distribution. Um, maybe there's still a chance it will, but we'll get to that. Mm. But. But yeah, I, I, it, that's what I think overall in terms of, you know, to talk about being sick of top ten lists. Yeah. Uh, and that um, there starts to be settle in this kind of bunker mentality around September and the internet and blogosphere mm. and Twittersphere or whatever of like, is this film Oscar worthy? And then, you know, there there's this sort of vicious winnowing process where certain films are considered to be that and certain films are cast aside. And a film like We Need to Talk About Kevin, for instance, which um, opens soon in New Zealand, which is a mm. fantastic film. Um, nobody has got recognized for that this year from the Academy. There's thought thought that Tilda Swinton might get a much-deserved nomination. She didn't. She didn't, yeah. Um, and, and so that's the end of that movie for the discussion yeah, of yeah. a lot of people. And it'll just you know drip out to a couple theaters and be forgotten. Or hopefully, like rediscovered or what have you. Mm. Um, whereas, if for, for whatever reason it had found the right distributor and the right place in the zeitgeist and mm. somehow snuck its way into those, it would be, you know, there would be all this oxygen. Lips, yeah, yeah, and and that's so depressing that that's what the conversation is about. Mm. You know, that we're talking about six thousand people who've got this stupid award who decide who else gets it mm. um, in, a, in a very privileged subset who are looking at whatever set of screeners come through that other people tell them are the screeners that they should look at yeah. and suddenly, you know, and I haven't seen, I can't even tell you most of the films that are nominated, but you know mm. I haven't seen The Artist, I haven't seen War Horse, I haven't mm. seen Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, or The Descendants um, I'm cynical about several of these films, yeah. War Horse, uh, but um, but you know the thing is, I just don't, I just don't get the impression that you know maybe I haven't seen them, and maybe you know it's it's not right for me to do this top list without seeing those. But I feel more strongly yeah. that the people who nominated those for those awards probably did not see Tabloid, did not see Meeks Cut Off, did not see Melancholia. Did not yeah. see Martha Marcy May Marlene no. because they weren't sucking up that cultural oxygen yeah. in the same way that the film It's Silent and It's a Cute Dog and Harvey Weinstein's sponsoring it yeah. got. 
Um, anyway, that's my rant. Let's talk about uh, your number one film. My number one Before film. Before we do that, yes, we're still running. My Great. number one film was uh, Say that has again. already come. My number one film has uh, already uh, come up. Um, it was your number five. Um, mixed cutoff. Yeah, um, I'm an unashamed fan of Kelly Rockett's output thus far. Well, the three that I've seen, um, and uh, this one, and that's um, Old Joy and Wendy and Lucy. Yeah, now yeah, mixed cutoff, cut right? Yeah, um, and of those three, I this could be my fave, possibly Wendy and Lucy. It's your number one film of the year, and it could be your favorite of her three. That's really that speaks volumes, I yeah. suppose. Is the year uh, out fandom? Um, because uh, yeah, well, I, I really love what she's done. It's a western, um, and she's completely redefined the western myth. I mean, it's interesting when you hear about people talking about redefining the western, like um, say Unforgiven, um, how Clint Eastwood sort of sort of. T- really kind of cut back on the glory aspect of, of these things and, and looked at, at the fact that this was a cold, nasty sort of mythology we were building here and maybe America wasn't all we think it was in, in this sort of cultural lens. I haven't so, seen Unforgiven. Oh, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's one of those... But I really like Unforgiven. Yeah. Um, I've heard great things about it. Um, Obviously, it's an but, obscure but film. But to a degree, it's it's, it's redefining it in, in a, in a small... Well, in a, in a big way, but not in a completely different way. Whereas this is completely redefining the Western mythology. It's t- it's stripping back the the kind of the grandeur and 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 the the excitement and cutting into very much realistic terms, like which is very Kelly Reichert. Um She's got um, this time period that people are used to seeing, sort of guns and glory, blazing um, showdowns, you know, cowboys, Indians. This has one character you might think of as a stereotypical kind of cow- cowboy, and he's kind of the most negative character. You're talking about Meek here. Yeah, Stephen yeah. Meek. Um, wonderfully played by Bruce, Bruce Greenwood. Um, <laughs> Such a great actor. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there's, there's an Indian chap <laughs> um, of undefined tribe, um, and he is suitably mysterious, but not... Yeah. You know, there's a big argument about whether he is, he whether he bears them any animosity or, or whether he he's trying to help them and and, he's, and to some degree he's mistreated, but at the same time they're very kind of heightened about the situation, so they don't quite know how to take him. Um, but here the drama is not so much about big gun battles; it's about oh my god, we're running out of water, which is actually in many places in the world it's life and death. If you right. don't have water, you're going to die, and they're running out of water. Um, it's about we're traveling, and our means of travel in this arid place, and our means of carrying the things we need, light water, are these wagons, um, which you're used to seeing in some westerns, um, and axle brakes. That's pretty mundane, except that that again is another life and death situation. And she draws the dramatic out of these everyday realistic experiences. Um, I had a friend describe it, uh, or somebody on the internet, I can't remember, described it as uh, Jerry on the Prairie, in a reference <laughs> yeah, to yeah, Gus Van Sant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, yes and no. I mean, Jerry is, 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 is kind of purposefully, to my mind, purposefully highly existential. Um, 
the entire thing really um and i I mean on one level you can read it as two guys have walked out into the into some sort of desert area and got lost um whereas this it's like it's based off some trail journals mixed cut off um actual trail journals and it's um it's very kind of slice of life rather than existential um except that it has some very existential themes sewn into it and and that sort of come come to your face because there are important things happening that uh, and, and again redefining some of the things in the in the past like the role of women in in, in this day and age um the the primary characters in, in mixed cut off um are a woman and and led by Michelle Williams right um who is a is a strong persona a strong character um and, and um that is another interesting thing because you know um, unless you're looking at something like The Quick and the Dead where they've got a Sharon Stone who's a like a a sexy female gunslinger um women are, ho- are whores <laughs> you know they, they populate the whorehouses or they're, they're kind of like a, a wife character who you don't really see yeah um whereas the women are front and centre with the men here and they I mean they have a slightly different role in terms of what they do but they're but they're the important drivers of the of the narrative. Um, As an aside, how amazing is it that you have two westerns on your list in two thousand eleven? Yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, it's such a great yeah. genre and um, one that was thought de- for dead for so long. I mean, what was the last great western before these? Dead Man. Yeah, yeah, probably. And again, that's another non-standard. <laughs> yeah, well, and that that was what fifteen years ago or yeah. something. Yeah, that was pretty. So, I mean, I was yeah far back in Jamushins. Um. Over, but yeah, yeah. So mixed cutoff, it was, uh, fascinating subject matter, slow moving, but um, visually stunning. I mean, if and as I mentioned before, the the DVD has done justice to the um, to the visual. So um, get get a copy of it if, if 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 it sounds like it could be interesting to you. Get a copy of it and watch it on as big a screen as you can find. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, well, one great thing that movies do is transport you to a time and place, yeah. and that's um, and if you're ready to take that ride, I yeah. think that's one thing that you can get really lost in the practicalities. There's a very long shot at the beginning, oh, yeah. for instance, of crossing a river. Crossing the river, yeah. And you don't really, and it seems quite long at the beginning, and you're like. You know, I'm kind of sick of looking at this water, and it's only about an hour or so later that you're like, "It's been a long time, time since, since I've seen, seen water." Yeah, yeah. Um, and even the mechanics of the shot—it's beautifully framed, like mm. in this um, four by three kind of frame, um, where you've got um, sort of wagons coming down this hillside towards this river, and the shot is um, is kind of zoomed across the river. Um, through grass and so even so often you've got the blurry kind of stalks just kind of registering that's ah, fantastic those ludicrously long dissolves yeah. like they're 10 oh, or yeah. and, uh, seconds I mean that, and that's and one of the classic gorgeous. shots in the film is that dissolve out of yeah. that first scene from the river um, through to that ridgeline track that they're that they're walking mm. that's super slow and sort of just merges and slowly through it's it's, it's a stunningly shot and, and, and composed film um, and and the slowness of it gives you space to appreciate that, like the construction and the visuals. I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And again, I, I, some people found it difficult, I guess, um, in terms of the pacing. Um, I didn't find that an issue. I just found it 
fascinating to watch yeah. um, and again like, I don't think of myself as a slow cinema enthusiast but I guess I see more than some well you, you watch Tarkovsky films so let's yeah. let's, let's be fair about <laughs> okay, this okay. yeah well fair, <laughs> fair point but um, yeah I mean I, it's a slow film but it's it's one that hopefully people can get lost in yeah but and again on that whole sort of thing this is didn't make cinematic release here went straight to DVD which was sad I thought it might I thought it might make it better. I guess, yeah. I mean, Not when I buzz out of the festival. I mean, when I saw it at Melbourne, it was at the Acme, which is you yeah, know, yeah. Australian Centre for Moving Image, and it was, you know, I mean, and some people, I mean, the whole issue of what gets released and what is not is a hotly content tested issue and people on Twitter discuss a lot. Yeah, I mean, I understand it's got to make money for the yeah. distributor, otherwise, you know, they can't do it. Yeah, and Melbourne's a city of four million people with several thriving art houses and the only place it could get a run was at, mm. you know, the the non-profit museum yeah. or semi-non-profit. I don't, I don't understand mm. their financials. But, um, and so I do understand that to yeah. a degree and I, I don't know that any place would have you know, been able to give it a run, but it's it's a little sad. It would have yeah. been nice to have it. But, you know, I mean, some people got to see it on the Civic screen. Yeah. And so that was, uh, that's something. Yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, I, I saw it, um, and aside from a few minor issues with um, framing, with, with the framing and and one of the um, one of the spools sort of went off. off track. Oh right, yeah, and so we had a bizarre suddenly angling of the film and. <laughs> wow. Well. I was I was fortunate to see it immaculately projected. There wasn't a single thing wrong with it, uh-huh. um, and it's amazing to think that in thirty years we'll be having these discussions of like, remember when they used to show film and yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah exa- exactly. Um, well, we could get into that a lot. I should probably say my number one. Yeah, well, um, Sleeping Beauty, Julia Lay. <laughs> I'm not sure I actually want to say anything else. Uh, <laughs> I, I must admit, when I read when I read it in the um, festival booklet, I, I and I haven't seen say, and I'm here to bring it up. I haven't seen Sucker Punch, and I haven't really wanted to. I haven't just, seen Sucker Punch either. Yeah, just thinking of Emily Browning, right? Um, but. Um, it stuck out, and I, I actually thought this looks like it could be quite interesting, but I couldn't fit it to my schedule. Right. Well, I was pretty sure it would come and back for distribution, back. but yeah. um, it's it. a film that provokes almost singularly um, visceral hatred amongst a lot of people. I was looking through, I think it was Reverse Shot, or some, some webzine was publishing their various top ten lists of the year, mm-hmm. and somebody said, oh, this is already the worst of the decade and I doubt the decade will see a worse than this I said something nice about it on Twitter and I got a fusillade of six texts from somebody who walked out of it at a screening in Melbourne and um, and I don't, I, I don't you know I don't understand what it is about it that makes people quite so angry there's um Obviously, it's. Do they think theme. it's exploitation? What? Well, so so for people who don't know what Sleeping Beauty is, uh, Emily Browning plays a college student who has some weird spare job. She's see, cleans up a restaurant every once in a while. Um, she in the opening scene, she's doing some test of laboratory, which involves putting um, a probe very deeply down her throat in an uncomfortable way. 
uh, most of the film shot in wide shots, kind of like a Michael Haneke mm. kind of uh, very um, Kubricky, very mm. clinical sort of approach. There's not a lot of interest in backstory. Um, the the character herself is very uninterested in telling the truth to almost anybody in the film, mm. and we're left perhaps a little bit at sea to find out what actually the truth is. Um, and at some point she stumbles into this um, crypto escort service um, that per- it starts with these eyes wide shut-esque kind of rituals and turns into um, a thing where she's um, basically um, permits herself to be sort of an escort where she's drugged and falls asleep and left to be an object of whatever to these elderly gentlemen, which sounds... in in which she's nude quite frequently. And so Mm. that... You can imagine the Raincoat Brigade version of this film quite easily. Mm. Um, And a lot of the... There was was a certain strain of people who hated it who were like, oh yeah, I saw some film in the 80s where, you know, it was a lot more porny and it was a lot better. And it's like... It's just so missing the point of the (laughs) film. Uh, Um... And what the point is of the film, I I still have a hard time articulating after a first viewing, and I'm scared to see it a second time. Um, I didn't even know when I walked out. I saw it by myself at the festival. And I'm like, that's a strange film. And I, about five minutes later, I was walking down the street, and just the full emotional weight of it hit me. And it's... Um, I don't really want to get into too many of the spoilers around mm. the film, but there is... Um, there's one character in the film with who who she has this sort of burlesque of a um, domestic relationship with oh, yeah. and he appears to be dying and um, it eventually comes out that um, this person is the brother of somebody that she used to date and seems to be a gay man and yet they're doing this um, kind of it's the only place where she's kind of has something resembling a typical domestic life and mm. has herself and and I think it is all about um trying to figure out you know what it means to be yourself in a in a society in a world where identity is really up for grabs is really up for sale mm. um that you can be anybody if you want to mm. and then finding that place where you actually find some sense of what yourself is and feeling comfortable and then losing that and sort of the nihilism that goes around with that. And, mm. and I, I, I wasn't thinking all that literally when I was watching it, but it's just that, yeah, it's that settled. Yeah. That, that those themes really hooked into me about that film and, and yeah. And it just has hit me harder than any film this year and so that's why it's my number one and if I watched it again um, there's some very difficult to swallow f- scenes in the film there's a scene where she's been put to sleep mm-hmm. and one of the elderly gentlemen that's come to spend time with her says to the um, madam of the establishment before you go let me tell you a story mm-hmm. and he proceeds to give a five minute incredibly theatrical monologue towards camera which it, this uh, person on twitter high bookish awkward um had you know i think walked out of the film at that point and and i understand that 
that's not going to work for everybody. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but there you go. My number one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of great films that we didn't mention, but you know, everybody else has mentioned. Them, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> should we talk about films that are coming up that are going to, um, that people should maybe go see? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, the one that's foremost in my mind at the moment is, uh, a, a little, a, a touching little, um, Indonesian, um, melodrama. <laughs> Let's uh, see how long you can keep this up for. <laughs> it's uh, called The Raid. Um, the motherfucking raid. <laughs> I have not seen this film. Oh my goodness. This is this is um this is canned viscera. Um probably uh, uh, it's always hard to say. Um at this time of year, but probably going to be one of the best action fight films of the year, um, if not the best. Um, uh, by a Welsh director, Gareth Evans, of all people, um, right. who I take it has... Spent... He's done a previous Indonesian film yeah, as well, right? Yeah, Bunahan yeah. Um, or something like uh, that? No, it starts with M. Um, his film oh, Murintau. Murintau, that's right. Yeah. This film company is named after it, I think. Um, and... Uh, he had I take it he's lived in Indonesia for some time um, and discovered some people who were doing some martial arts I think the guy who started in the film was like a track driver that he discovered who was a martial artist as well and now he sort of moved him into acting and the guy's keen yeah. to stay in it um, anyway it's a um, pretty simple setup for this film um, uh, focuses on a guy who's, who's a member of the police force um, and uh, his uh, a special unit's been pulled together to go and uh, and capture uh, a criminal kingpin who uh, essentially runs a, a, a housing estate block, um, so an apartment block um, uh, that is generally acknowledged to be kind of off limits to police or anyone like that. And uh, he kind of ha- holds a lot of sway over local gangs, and and he essentially kind of gives a place where criminals can live freely. In, in a sense that they can run their endeavours and not worry about being troubled by the law, except that they're in his pocket. So they pay him money, blah, blah, blah. And so these people turn up, and their job is to sneak their way into the building as quiet as possible, get up to where he is, take him out before they kind of get, uh, I guess, um, located by people. Um, but obviously things don't go to plan. Um, they start off doing reasonably well, and then some spotters kind of get wind of them and, and send the alarm off and then next thing you know it's just uh, fight, fight, fight. Right. Um, which is what you've showed up for, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is what you've shown up for. Um, so there's a bit of a setup time but it's actually quite good. Uh, it's, it's kind of... It's, it's a nice balance if you're thinking of a fight action film of hand-to-hand combat and whatever local Indonesian martial art they have which I have no idea what it's called. Um, but also gunfights, knife fights, um machetes and all other sorts of bits and pieces the odd explosion whatever is laying around yeah yeah but it's, it's a really contained film being in the, in the sort of apartment block so you've got the kind of really contained set um, it knows what it's about it's not trying to be anything super dramatic you know it's not trying to but it, there's a few little twists and pieces in it it's not completely devoid of plot and character but but for instance there's only two women in it and right. maybe they're on screen for two minutes a piece or something um, so I mean it, it's, it's one for the men um, not that women <laughs> might not enjoy it but it's not written 
for women characters, um, female characters. Um, now, I've only seen the trailer. Yeah. And my predominant reaction to the trailer was, how did nobody get killed during the making of this? Is that kind of yeah. how it plays out? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very visceral. And, and like, the characters are, like, there's, there's one character near the start where... Um, the police guys are describing some of the main guys' profiles. You've got to watch out for these guys. This guy is, in quote, a fury of fists and feet. <laughs> and it seems a bit cheesy, but they get to him and it's, a, it's an apt description. Right. <laughs> like, he's kind of, as you know, Indonesians aren't the biggest people. He's not a big guy, he's small, but man, he gets around the room. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever seen an Indonesian action film. I'm not sure that I have either. Okay. Um,. Uh, maybe it was a bit like you know when um, when uh, Tony Jaa came out and right and um, Ong Bak yeah, Ong Bak yeah um, except that it's not nearly as silly as Ong Bak it doesn't have you know oh my goodness look at this great stunt we pulled off I'm going to show you three times and right. slow mo from several different angles um, <laughs> to be fair Jackie Chan did that as well yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> um, yeah well I, you know Jackie Chan had a little more credibility maybe I don't know. <laughs> Um, I just watched Project Day a couple of weeks ago where he, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they did they did a stunt where he fell off a couple of buildings and threw some awnings and then it's like, oh, in case you missed that, we'll go to the B-camp. Yeah. Um, but this is, there's, there's, from what I can think, there's not any of that kind of repeated, this, check out this awesome piece of action we just got. Yeah. Right. Um, and the main guy who's like really kick-ass is not they don't go to lengths to show how much better he is than everyone else i mean to a degree but like he you know up against the main bad guy of some other guys you know he's not super super special but you know right. it's just great action really visceral like I mean, it's not for the squeamish um but at the same time thoroughly entertaining i think um if it can get a good platform it'll it'll do really well um it's, it's due to come out um early march cool um, and and I'd recommend getting to it if you like action films, get to it. I'm really excited. I mean, every you know that Jacob's obviously one opinion, but everyone who I know on Twitter who saw it was just raving about it. And before yeah. that, everyone who I know who's seen it at festivals. Yeah. Um, and as much as my top five was, you know, soft and silent uh, uh, festival films, I, I love a good ass kicking yeah. as much as the next guy. Well, one interesting point was that the the, the version we saw um, had um, the original soundtrack, um, whereas the theatrical release is going to have a, a different soundtrack um, that was redone by Mike Shinoba, Shinoda, I can't remember his name, but from Linkin Park. Um, right. I'm not particularly into Linkin Park, but um, I can see how redoing the score might uh, add to the film. And that it was a pretty sparse score to begin with, and you could have done a bit more with it. Um, but the version that um, that got uh, was an audience favourite at Sundance had the new score, right. whereas the uh, uh, the one at um, Toronto, Toronto had, had the old had score. the old score. Yeah, so uh, I'd be interested to see it again scored differently to see what impact that has. But I mean, it's not going to make it worse. I mean, the film is re- pretty well put together for what it is. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, I am. Um... And apparently, he's already working on the sequel. Right, and there's always there's already a, an, uh, a US remake happening as well. Yeah, and it's quite nice to know that um, it's actually coming out here in New Zealand on March 22nd, I believe. Yeah, and, I think so. And that's right around the time it opens in the states. Yeah, before it's the it day before in... it comes out in Indonesia. It's uh, maybe three days after it comes out in the UK. I think it's the 18th. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's before it comes out in the States even. Yeah. So hats off to Madman because yeah, you know, yeah. Um, Good on them. There's, there's so many films that we wait six months, 12 months or, you know, indefinitely for. <coughs> it's <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So speaking of other movies that are coming out soon, Attack the Block. Yeah. Um, I we should, we don't have to go on at great length of this because yeah. we you know we've mentioned in previous podcasts, but um, it's really grown on me with uh, hindsight. Um, it's just such a. Um, have you seen it again? I haven't seen it again. It's just more in in my head. Well, I think I, I mentioned in the previous podcast the first time I saw it, I, I spent something like literally half the movie. Um, really angry about what the movie was asking me to do in terms of audience sympathy, oh. in terms of, you know, it sets up these characters mm. who, you know, in their first scene, you know, mug this um, poor white woman who's happens to be living in the projects. And, mm. um, and then it's like, oh, guess what? These are your heroes. Mm. And, and it took, you know, a full half of the movie for me to catch on to the fact that the director was fully complicit in understanding all the issues around that. Yeah. And um, so I think watching it again, I'd, I'd be able to get a lot more joy mm. from the outset of just the setup without being hung up on that yeah. kind of thing. But it's just, it's just such a terse, no bullshit. Um, I had a discussion recently with someone saying that some people um, were disappointed with it because it wasn't in the Shaun of the Dead uh, hot fuzz kind of thing because Joe Cornish has been associated with Edgar Wright. Yeah, yeah. and so was producer. Uh, he was, uh, I don't know exactly yeah. what his involvement was, but um, you know that that didn't a didn't occur to me and b um, you know I I wouldn't want the film to be more that way. Yeah. It's so good as a straight up sci-fi action character. Yeah, piece. Yeah. That's not taking the piss. That's um, playing to the very limits of its budget yeah. and intent, and just yeah, I think they did yeah. a great job at the budget level that they had of um, making some interesting alien creatures, right? Um, out of not very much, yeah. um, but um, the amount of kind of and taking a genre film and really kind of overlaying it with uh, kind of social issues of the day. Um, well, often and because a, a lot yeah. of the UK riots, it's it's very very kind of you know um, yeah I mean it, yeah it was it, it was released around that time which is certainly um, provides one layer of it but you know when you say for the budget you know often when you know we talk about movies like oh it was good for the budget it's like ah uh, but only if they'd had some more money to do what they really wanted, wanted to, do. to do. But no, Whereas, this was... This yeah, was... I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to see a bigger budget remake of Attack no, no. the Block. Um, you know? No, it, it's a fantastic yeah. film. Um, you know, don't don't think... Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to mislead. Oh, no, no, I, I'm not. Like, yeah. It was a lesser version of... A it's not, not a charity case. Yeah, <laughs> you no. know? Um, I, I think, if, again, I think this could be a film that could do really well. Um if people get wind of it yeah I think it's just a matter of finding the right audience and hopefully it will find the right audience and to be fair probably I don't think our podcast audience is necessarily (laughs) going to make much inroads but you know I think there's a whole I mean certainly like in South Auckland and places like that there would be a really strong audience that if they knew what this was and Mm. went out to see it would really click on Mm. to that and hopefully um, A. hopefully they find that audience and B. 
hopefully the incredible delay from its what may release in the UK to its 10 month later release in New Zealand hasn't yeah. meant that they've lost that potential audience through mm. you know, internet piracy or whatever else yeah. or just yeah, disinterest for the new next thing yeah so we'll see um Moneyball also comes out. Um, we're really only talking about films we've seen here, and I've managed to catch that. Yeah, I haven't seen when I was in the states. Um, so, do you know what do you think? Well, do you know the history of Moneyball? I know, not really. I know who's in it. Yeah. But. So, Moneyball was is based on a Michael Lewis book about um, the Oakland A's, who are a baseball team in the states, who didn't have a lot of money, but got this GM who and who brought on. The GM in the movie is played by Brad Pitt, and yeah. he brought on the statistician who's played by Jonah Hill oh, yeah. in a really good perform. You know, completely Jonah Hill redefining sort of performance, um, and using this statistical analysis of like not which players have the sexiest stats, but which players are actually contributing in a certain way, hmm. managed to elevate the A's at their budget level to a you know a contending team, if not a pennant winning team. Um, and Steven Soderbergh was supposed to direct the film, and he, oh. uh, and he, so he embraced this sort of statistician side of it to the point yeah, yeah. where his pitch for it had an animated character from this of uh, Bill James, who's notorious for being, he's he's name dropped in the film. He came up with these things called the Baseball Abstract, where he write every year, and yeah. he came up with new stats to evaluate players by, um, and just really, you know embraced that side of it perhaps at the expense of human drama which mm-hmm. anyone who's seen a Steven Soderbergh film can understand how that might happen <laughs> um, and at some point the studio said uh, what the fuck are you doing and dropped him and they brought in instead Bennett Miller who directed uh, Capote most recently yeah. uh, and so it's hard for me to watch Moneyball well, A, it's hard for me to imagine anybody in New Zealand going to a film about U.S. baseball. Yeah. But they, they'd be much more likely to get something out of the Bennett Miller version than the Steven Soderbergh version. Yeah. In the sense that the Bennett Miller version... More accessible. Um, well, it, it, it graphs on this storyline about... <laughs> it graphs on this storyline about... Uh, you know, uh, he's divorced and there's his daughter. And um, oh, in one of the more peculiar decisions, um, she plays a song that she's written that's one of the Moldy Peaches songs from uh-huh. Juno. But yeah. she's in the text of the film, she's written it. It's very... That's a bit odd. It is very odd. It's it's a very strange decision. Um, and... I think Bennett Miller hadn't seen Juno, perhaps, or um, <laughs> I'd see only you know it's just like it's just such a you know I'm just a little bit stuck in the middle of that mm. thing, and um, and so he plays that emotional through line for what it's worth while still getting in um, what for me are the money scenes of the film, which are um, you know Jonah Hill and Brad Pitt sitting down against this sort of establishment and saying what they're going to do and you know, working their way through, mm. you know, the, the, the team has their own, you know, ye old experts that, um, yeah, yeah. get, uh, one upped, uh, throughout it. And, uh, so, yeah, so there's a lot of little joys in it, um, and some perplexing decisions 
and um, and I really don't know how it's going to play with New Zealand audiences. I think it's a film worth seeing. I don't necessarily think it's a film worth rushing out to see, mm. um, I, but you know, certainly a rental. I think it's. Uh, I think people who really like Brad Pitt and have been following him for a while, it's an interesting step in his evolution as an actor. Um, somebody pointed out he's becoming Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. Like you know, if you if you put this back to back with a river runs through it, you know, you'd almost like <laughs> yeah, yeah. start getting some weird vibes there. <laughs> like. Um, there's that, and Bennett Miller does have a gift for certain um, playing certain scenes in wide shot and letting things yeah. play out in interesting framing. Um, Do you think you have? Go you ahead. Have, to have some sort of interest in sport to to connect to it, or maybe it's hard for me to say. Um, I I'm I'm a weird case in that you know I'm not a sports guy now, but I grew up on baseball, and I mean I read the baseball abstract and you know I collected baseball cards and that all meant a lot to me Mm. and so even though it's not something I really follow I couldn't tell you who played in the World Series last year or Mm. any year in recent history um I I fell back into that really easily yeah um I think that um the film does a decent job of of having enough entertaining scenes involving basic human things yeah there's a bit where um uh, basically, Jonah Hill's character is elevated to sort of an assistant manager level, and Brad Pitt's character tells him that he has to um, fire some people, or fire, you know, tra- the characters traded to another yeah. team. Um, and, you know, there's all this nerve wracking, well, how do I do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and, and scenes like that where there's a very human element yeah. to it that is, well, you know, transcends any sort of sport element whatsoever so i i do think i do think it's there and i do think people will get it whether they'll care enough yeah is a separate issue yeah um so yeah that's that's a mild recommend you know if you're yeah um which you raise if you have interest in those particular characters raise if you have interest in aaron sorkin there's a couple great sorkin-esque scenes in there he and steve zylan Wrote the, co-wrote the script or, or the credited co-writers oh, yeah. um, uh, how much they actually work together I think they might have passed drafts between but um, there's a couple scenes that are very Sorkin yeah. and anyone who's a West Wing or Studio 60 fan will just uh, fall in love with regardless of the extent to which they understand what's being discussed um, yeah and of course we need to talk about Kevin which I think we mentioned before is yeah. uh, coming up as well um, so that's stuff that's coming up that uh, we've seen, but then there's also older films, and you know it'd be a still going. It'd be a shame to neglect older films. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, um, speaking of Russian films, I know that you've uh, stepped back into the uh, Russian time machine recently. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I, um, I had a had a night uh, a night free where. Uh, my lovely other half was uh, doing some other stuff, um, and so I, I checked on uh, Tarkovsky's um, Mirror, yeah, um, which I've had sitting on my DVD shelf for quite some time. I've got a, a reasonable collection of Tarkovsky films. So, what's um, your what you've seen most of the Tarkovsky films, right? Well, yeah, I'd say so. There's only seven, so yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I started with some of the earlier ones, um, uh, Ivan's Childhood, yeah, um, which I saw. But I guess prior to 
general availability on DVD through um, a Russian lecturer when I studied some Russian language um, and was fascinated by it. Um, and so I then went out and found some Tarkovsky films and then I subsequently saw the Chris Marker documentary that came through the, through the festival. Um, which incidentally, it's referencing the Solzhenitsyn book, um, One Day in the Life of um, Ivan Donosovich. Uh, yeah, so Mirror um, is probably, subsequently I, I, I watched it and it was uh, a confusing mess of, uh, of images. Um, enjoyable, but uh, I guess hard to kind of connect with at times. Um, so I decided to read a few kind of reviews of it um, after watching because I thought I needed some help to get my head around this, um, which is often the case with Russian cinema because it's so packed with social and political commentary that you have no idea about or very right. limited idea about. Um, and uh, from what I've found is that most people find it his least accessible film. Um, it's his middle one, uh, and it's his most autobiographical. Um, and apparently he's the only one that is confused or thinks that it's kind of an easy read <laughs> possibly because it's all of his personal experiences right. um, apparently the film all of the action in the film is things that have uh, happened throughout his lifetime um, and in fact mirror people in his life um, and so but the, there are uh, actors that recur as different characters at different times and the narrative cuts back and forth between memories of certain time uh, uh, so um, a, a sort of a grandparent kind of character and then a current day well what would have been current day character of a, of a child uh, uh, of a father and child and their relationship and then the father as a child with his mother and yeah and so it's kind of confusing about who's who um, and, and he does division some things in black and white but it's not necessarily the time period um, okay. it's I think about the the some of it is memory and action, and then some of it is acting. Sorry, and some of it is um, uh, archival footage of actual events or parts of events occurring that is cut into the um, into the film. Um, and I think he distinguishes those between color and and uh, and black and white. Um, Again, with the elemental thing, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of wind shots um, of the wind acting upon grass and trees um, in long shots, um, and, and and fire as well. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, instances of fire. A house uh, or a barn burns down um, at one stage, uh, which you see from one perspective, and then it comes back later on to see perhaps the beginning of that later on. Uh, yeah, so. Uh, there's a lot about about memory and impression and feeling about times of your life and how that then sort of plays out later on in your life. So something from your childhood where you're on one half of a thing then sort of replays in your adult life. Sort of that parallel yeah. editing thing where it jumps yeah. along to the back. Yeah, and, and, and the kind of the action... It's not mirrored, but but it, there's some mirroring that goes on in terms of yeah. events in a child's life and events in that that child is an adult and but then their child yeah yeah so i've seen uh, i've seen the mirror twice actually the, yeah. it was the first tarkovsky film i've seen i've seen all the tarkovsky films yeah. now and uh, you know i was doing this thing where i was just like going through 
all the big names of cinema and I I think yeah. I rented the mirror because it had one of the shortest running times. <laughs> yeah. um, well, there is that. <laughs> and I um, I think my uh, reaction on the first screening, which was off of VHS, was um, could be summed up in four words, which is "What the fucking fuck." <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there's some beautiful images in it. The the room collapsing with the plaster, yeah. Yeah, while yeah. the woman's there's a woman floating in it. Is that right? Um, there's there I don't think those are exactly the same shot. Maybe actually. I'm maybe I'm um, conflating two th- images. There is uh, a transitional shot where someone goes into has been doing some things and it goes into a dream kind of sequence almost where there's a lot of water they've been drinking some water and then water starts running down all the walls and then the plaster starts collapsing right but there's another the shot with the woman floating is later on when, okay yeah um yeah I saw it um later when I was lit um there was a 35 millimeter screening of Oh, uh, most really? of Tarkovsky's films in Portland when I was there, and so that's oh, how fantastic. I, I saw Stalker and Solaris and Ivan's Childhood, and uh, and I went to see The Mirror for the second time oh, wow. there, and uh, I think that was the second time I saw Solaris as well, and and certainly fantastic. the large format and presumably thirty five millimeter does a lot for making sense, yeah, of Tarkovsky, um, but. It still only went so far, and um, there's a lot of metaphor and, and sort of stuff buried in it. But he's yeah, he's got great recurring imagery, which I quite enjoy. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely a film that if you're willing to be a bit at sea with the actual mm. content of, but just coast on the imagery, um, it's still yeah, it's somewhat stream of consciousness. So it's it's pro- it's probably my least satisfying Tarkovsky film. Of his, you know, relatively. I mean, we, well, we've got we've got Ivan's Childhood, we've got Andre Rublev, we've got yeah. Stalker, Solaris, The Mirror, Nostalgia, Nostalgia, yeah, and one other. Ah, oh, yep. Um, the name is floating around my head, but it's not landing. Ah, oh, well, um, we've uh, proven our lack of cinema literacy by <laughs> getting the seventh Tarkovsky film, but. Um, yeah, of those, I found it to be right. still the least rewarding. But yeah, I don't know. I, maybe I'll come back to it someday and I'll click. You know, that's. Yeah. I guess that's the exciting thing about it as a film is that you do know because it's so personal. There's something there, and you yeah. don't know if it's that it's so personal that only the director will ever understand yeah. it, or somehow that through a series of life experiences that'll get meaning in a way you know because whenever we watch a film at a different age it means yeah. something to us that it didn't, wouldn't if we had seen it at yeah. a different age yeah well I, and I mean I found it somewhat difficult as well but as usual with Tarkovsky the imagery and the and the um, the visuals are magnetic they there's something about the, the way that he shoots and, and, and his use of imagery is fantastic like the the scene like, I, I can't tell if he how long he waited to get the shot but um, it must have been purposeful um, right near the start where um, a man walks out of a field and talks to this woman who's hanging around with the kids at the start and then I think he walks off and then uh, after their interaction there's just a shot of some grass and trees getting really buffeted by the wind and they're really flexible and they're below yeah. round and it's, it's 
That's which echoes some shots in Solaris as yeah, well, with hypnotic. the um, yeah. the going the underwater plants going yeah. through the uh, uh, water, and that's. Um, I was lucky to see um, the Andrei Arsenovich film that you mentioned at mm. a relatively early stage in working through Tarkovsky, and I think that understanding that whole idea of Russian mm. elemental symbolism mm. yeah. really made a difference in in that, and that you didn't necessarily have to look for a deeper yeah. metaphor than that, just embracing sort of the power of those elements. I'm somebody yeah. who's always like two of my least favorite films are uh, Spielberg's AI and uh, Catherine Brulot's anatomy of hell. Huh? And the only thing they have in common is that they both start with incredible shots of water. Oh yeah. Yeah. Our Brulot's may not start, but she's got them in there and, mm. and um, there's something magnetic for me about that imagery. And, mm. um, and I think, you know, there there may be s- symbolic reasons in both, but mm. ultimately, it's like I just like looking at that, and that's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we get back to films like Aida, it's like, you know, there's some things I just like looking at on film, yeah, yeah. and you know, light passing through space and water breaking, and it's a visual medium, you know. It's... Well, that that's the, that's the thing. What where I can't go to the theater and see that, I can't read a book and see that, yeah. But I can see that on film, and that's yeah. what's magic about film. Mm. Yeah, so so that was that was. Uh, That's what I, you've I, been I, watching. Yeah, and, and to a degree, I felt like I needed to because a uh, uh, person I met off Twitter, um, another critic, um, had borrowed um, my copy of um, Stalker, which I also was one of the others that I hadn't seen. Um, and I thought, wow, I really do need to get on to the rest of Tarkovsky. So I thought, yeah. oh well, I've got a free night to watch Mirror, and. Uh, yeah, very rich but challenging. Stalker is a great film, and I'd love yeah. to um, give it another look. I've only seen mm. it the once, but um, yeah, it's a really yeah, it, it's a it's a tough film in certain ways, but mm. I'm relative to the mirror, much more accessible and very yeah. rewarding. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so meanwhile, I've been on the opposite end of the film spectrum. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so some of us watched Tarkovsky, others watched the uh, work of uh, noted Christian auteur Rich Cristiano. <laughs> I don't know that Rich Cristiano is his <laughs> real name. Um, I'd encourage all of you, actually, if you're listening, to pause right now and go to YouTube and Google, uh, go to YouTube and search for the trailer for Time Changer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll just pause for a moment. <clears throat> Okay, good. Um, so you've seen that, and you're wondering if that's an actual movie, probably. Um, Jacob's at a disadvantage. So basically, um, Time Changer was the first Rich Cristiano film I've introduced was introduced to, and uh, the trailer basically sets up a world where it's the 1890s, and these theologians are having this debate about whether or not um, it's appropriate to teach the morality of Christianity without invoking the name of Christ. And most of them agree, oh, of course, you know, because it's a good morality Mm. and all of this. And then one of them has grave doubts. And we wonder, well, why does he have grave doubts? The answer is, of course, that he has a time machine and has traveled (laughs) to the future. 
and he has seen a very godless future. Um, you know, where the name of Jesus is no longer permitted to be used in schools when teaching science, and the Lord's name is regularly taken in vain at motion pictures. Um, <laughs> and 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 so on and so forth. And um, it's got um, uh, Hal Linden from um, Barney Miller. Um, oh, wow. Richard... Uh, Richard Rasha from uh, Office Space. Oh, nice. And, uh, and, um, Kit Cameron's not there, is yeah, he? No, he's oh, not. No. But there's there's another actor whose name I'm blanking on right now. Um, and well, and, and so, so they're all... It's all slightly respectable. Right. Um, in a very... Paul Rodriguez is, is also in it as the um, token uh, Mexican who works at the cleaners, who, um, our time-traveling hero, manages to um, explain the ways of Christ to... <laughs> Um, and it doesn't compare to the tra- the trailer at all because um, we've talked about the circle of quality before, yeah, right? Yeah. So, uh, Rich Cristiano has made several films, and so let's put Time Changer aside for the moment and go back in time to 1992 to a film called Second Glance. I just watched Second Glance for the first time last night. Um, one of the early Rich Cristiano works. And it is a film that is sort of in that... It's starting to approach that room kind of level. <laughs> where there's absolutely nothing right about it. Um, the, it's, it's basically a rip-off of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, as written by people who want you to be more Jesus-y. Uh, so the main character is a high school student who's a Christian. Who runs um, some after-school Christian group. Um, and does interventions with students who need help oh, and all yeah. of this. But, you know, he, he he can't quite make it with the girls because they think he's a nice guy. And, um, and so after a particularly trying day at school where things haven't gone right, you know, he hasn't impressed the girl. And, and, and to be clear, this is the sort of film where the slutty girl who's the bad girl is still wearing a shirt with such large shoulder pants that you, pads that you actually can't discern whether she has breasts. <laughs> it's a sort of film where two characters go to kiss, a locker in front of screen opens in front of them, so the actors aren't forced to actually kiss when they don't believe. You know? <laughs> um, so he says, he, at night, he he says a prayer to God and wishes he had never been a believer. I The exact wording is up for question. And so he wakes up the next day and through an angel named Muriel, for whatever reason, Muriel is an angelic name, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds a bit like Gabriel, yeah? Yeah, yeah he, he is brought into this alternate reality where he was never a believer. And through this, he discovers that, you know, it wasn't his parents working through hard times. It was only the power of his prayer that kept his parents together. So his oh, parents are now divorced. His little daughter was never born. He's one of the bad kids. Um, he has these girls fighting over them. Um, and so on and so forth. And this all unfolds in a very, in just a, an incredibly awkward manner. And, um, you know, it's a sort of, you know, like, it kind of feels like it was edited on two videotapes where nobody actually had control of ins and outs, like the titles were done that way. Um, and it's only 58 minutes. It's well worth anybody's time. It's not even 58 minutes because the version I watched had 
numerous trailers of the Christiana Brothers over at the end. Um, <laughs> oeuvre, whatever, however you pronounce it. Um, but it is telling, because you watch that back-to-back with Time Changer, which I, beyond any wise reason to do so, did. So I've seen Time Changer twice now. <laughs> um, you see what the difference is. Um, because over the years, Rich Cristiano has learned a bit about filmmaking and has worked with, you know, he's so gone... So when, when was Time Changer? Uh, Time Changer was 2003, I believe. 2002, oh, right. 2003. Well, so, and there were several movies in the middle mm. and um, in terms of script writing he's as, still as subtle as the bag of hammers um, for instance um, Jennifer O'Neill who appeared in Scanners and many other exploitation movies um, has since embraced the way of the Lord and she has I'll say it's eight minutes it feels like 20 minute um, <laughs> scene where she talks about how she she works at a library now She's her name's been given to our David Dobbin, who plays the lead, as you know, the only person to talk to in the future who can help guide him. And she discusses at great length how uh, motion pictures are the work of Satan and brought to corrupt us. And ever since, basically, um, the delinking of Jesus Christ's name and the teaching of morality yeah. through the introduction of a, a code of ethics in film, that Satan has triumphed and the end times are near. And this goes on for eight minutes. It's what not, bizarre. Uh, um, and so it's obviously she's got some major regret. And, and I don't know if she actually wrote her scene or improved it or um, what, or if it was developed in integration. <laughs> say what you feel. <laughs> it's it's jaw dropping, but um, oh, you know, there's it, it's a reminder. I suppose. I mean, with the end of it, what I take away from. The films of Rich Christian, and there's many more of them. Um, one of the major plot points in Second Glance, uh, I might have been calling it Second Chance, but it's Second Glance, um, involves um, the main character getting people to come to see a movie after school, which will change uh, their views about religion. Oh. The main bully character, who's named Doug, which I was amused by to no end, <laughs> um, is actually secretly reading the Bible at night, according to what Muriel's saying, and yeah. it, it gets him to come. And the film they're showing is The Appointment, which is actually a previous film by Rich Christiana. <laughs> um, the other thing that's really interesting about them, to me, in terms of just casting a light, I mean, because one of the great things about films, right? I mean, we go to Say, see some film in Mongolia yeah, or see, yeah. uh, see some film at the outer edges of Alaska where people are living in that. And, and, mm-hmm. and there's this anthropological appeal. Yeah. Um, they're often as directed against the church establishment as they are against unbelievers. And this is particularly true in Time Changer, where the main antagonists are um, these people at the church who... Um, one's a policeman it's not even clear what the other one does but they basically have decided to make it their hobby to antagonize our protagonist um and they don't like the fact that he has you know that he's offended by blasphemy in films and that he has these old fashioned values and that um you know it's quite pointedly in the film that you know there's very few people in the film that are in the church who are interested in increasing the ministry of the church 
and the when they do it's based on the fact that they have a great you know volleyball team and that you know access to a pool and they do these activities rather than that they pray and you yeah. know celebrate the lord um so that's kind of what on earth put you onto these films um a friend of mine uh, showed me the trailer for Time Changer, and uh, well, well, <laughs> it was so bizarre. It was so. We're gonna pause right now and watch the trailer for Time Changer. All right. So yeah, so that's the magic of Time Changer. Wow, there's some uh, special moments of uh, pure drama in that <laughs> trailer, aren't there? Yeah. Well, yeah. Gavin Gavin McLeod's giving it his all. I forgot to mention him before. I think I mispronounced Richard Riley's name, um, who you know, most will remember from Office Space yes, as the yes. uh, jump to conclusions yeah, man. Yeah. Interesting note, he did this back-to-back with Ken Park, the uh, Larry Clark film that was rated X in a lot of territories. (laughs) Um, I can only imagine, like, what one script on the other film looked like when he was, like, (laughs) spooning up for his lines for the next film. Um, But, yeah, it's, you know, ultimately, it comes down to this. I like to see films that are, like, nothing I would ever imagine for myself. Yeah. And... You know, if I see the trailer for J. Edgar, I pretty much know exactly what that film's gonna be. Gonna yeah. be, and I watch this, and I'm like, "What on earth?" Yeah, <laughs> and and you know, it's a little depressing to me that you know, the films have reached the level of competence that it's it's not gonna be wall to wall entertainment in the way that the early ones are. But yeah. you know, it has its moments. Yeah. yeah. Um, on that note, shall we call it a uh, yeah. night? And uh, I think we're going to try to do this monthly. Yep. For anyone yep. who's still listening, and uh, so if you have anything you want to hear in the next month, um, I guess let us know over Twitter, and yep. we'll uh, yep. we'll try to work it in. And uh, should we give yeah. our Twitter handles? The La Monster, Jacob Bunny. Yeah. Um, and on that note, see you next month. Alrighty. Thanks. See you.